6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 44 through 45. The Babylonian Empire, the captivity predicted to last 70 years and does to the very day. But that leads to the event that I want to uh, recount a little bit. You see, there's a young man that surfaces in history, young guy, by the name of Cyrus II. He's the son of Cambyses I and his wife Mandane. And Cambyses is the king of an area called Anshan, which is East Elam. And Cyrus's mother is the daughter of Astyagus, the king of Media. Astyagus is a bad dude. He has got a fatal fault. He's corrupt and weak. Now, if you're corrupt and powerful, you can pull that off, right? But if you're corrupt and weak, you're destined, you know, that tends to be career limiting. And so, <laughs> anyway, Cyrus is born of the parents, but Cambyses I dies, and so Cyrus accedes to the throne of East Elam. But the first thing he does, young Cyrus is a pretty savvy dude. He consolidates the, the empire into the Persians into a consolidated group, and then after about nine years of consolidation, he decides to attack his father-in-law, Astyagus. It also turns out that Astyagus, the king, did a dumb thing. He wronged his key general, a guy by the name of Harbagus. So when Cyrus attacks Astyagus, Astyagus' key general switches sides and joins Cyrus. I guess he knows the winner when he sees it. So there's a famous battle at Ecbatana in which Cyrus seals up the Medes and the Persians as the, what becomes the Persian Empire. By the way, he captures Ecbatana without a battle, and that's going to be his pattern on a number of occasions. Eleven years later, he's going to end up doing that to Babylon. There's a fabled king by the name of Croesus, the king of Lydia, who's incredibly wealthy. He decides not to acknowledge the sovereignty of uh, Medo-Persia. So Cyrus takes care of him and uh, takes care of the recognition and also gets all his wealth by conquering uh, Croesus. And seven years later, we come to Babylon. Now, Babylon was in no position to knock off the Persians because for 14 years, the king of Babylon, this is a successor to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nabonidus, is bored with the affairs of state. For 14 years, he dallies around in foreign intrigues, doesn't even visit the capital, Babylon. He leaves his son as the co-regent, a guy by the name of Belshazzar. As the Persian menace grows, Belshazzar is arrogant. Babylon has got walls 15 miles on a side. They're 87 feet thick. According to Rhodus, they have chariot races, you know, six abreast on the top of the wall. The city is fed by a river, the Euphrates, which not only goes through the city to provide it water, it also feeds the moat that surrounds the double-walled city. It's regarded in the technology of time as being invincible. When a city was very strong militarily, 
no problem. They just seal it off and let it starve it out with the siege. But see, Babylon, with its own water supply, uh, had uh, an apparent immunity to such things. It turns out that uh, Cyrus has the benefit of an outstanding general, a guy by the name of Ugbaru. One of the first things Ugbaru does, he he, uh, conquers a city by the name of Opis, which is on the Tigris, but that gives him control of the canal system in the Babylonian area. And a little bit later, on the 10th of October of 539 B.C., the next city, Sippar, falls, again without a battle, and Nabonidus fled. He wasn't at Babylon, he was at this outlying city. Now... That leads, of course, to one of my favorite passages in the Scripture, because while the Persians are setting themselves up in Babylon, Belshazzar decides to throw a party. And it's my favorite party. I think it's great. And so uh, you'll have to indulge me as we explore and review ourselves Daniel 5, because this is one of those places where I don't think you can improve on the King James. You with the nearly inspired versions, read and weep. We'll just keep moving. Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. A thousand people. Now the room that he's doing this in is Nebuchadnezzar's palace. That building is rebuilt today. If you could go to Babylon and visit, you can visit the room where this all happened, reconstructed from the archaeological ruins. A thousand people at a party, that's not bad. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring in the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and the princes and the wives and the concubines might drink from them. Just to the north, next door to Nebuchadnezzar's palace, was a museum. And this is where Nebuchadnezzar, 70 years earlier, put the vessels that he plundered from the temple. And Belshazzar, not content to leave them there as trophies, decided to to thumb his nose at the God of Israel by using them as party vessels. Send his messenger, hey, bring those over. We're going to desecrate them. That was a big mistake. I'm always reminded of that ad campaign years ago. You don't, you know, you don't mess around with Mother Nature. Remember they had that thing? I was thinking it's the same thing. You don't mess around with the God of the universe. You, know, you don't poke him and get him angry. That doesn't pay off to him. Verse 3, then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which were, it was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone and all that stuff. Then it happened. In the same hour came forth the fingers of a man's hand. That would catch everyone's attention, wouldn't it? And rode up over and against the lampstand upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote... Can you visualize that part of a hand writing on the wall? Kind of creepy. And I love verse 6, and you have to read it in the King James. Then the king's countenance was changed, (laughs) and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against the other. (laughs) It's the only place in the Bible where you have to read it with a Harvard accent. I can't quite pull that off, but... Notice that the joints of his loins were loosed. We'll come back to that phrase. Yes, you got it. I'm really going to get in trouble for this one. Any of you remember the story about Lord Nelson? Lord Nelson's in his cabin. Cabin boy comes in. Sir, sir, there's a Spanish galleon on the port quarter. 
He says, sound general quarters and bring me my red waistcoat. Puts on his red waistcoat. They go up and uh, engage the Spanish galleon and sink it. Everything's fine. Another day or two, cabin boy comes running in. Lord Nelson, Lord Nelson, there's two Spanish galleons on the port quarter. Sound general quarters and get me my red waistcoat. Puts on his red waistcoat, goes out to the battle. They engage the Spanish galleons and sink them. A couple days later, the cowboy comes in and says, Sir, request permission to ask a question. He says, Granted. He says, I notice every time we sound general quarters, you ask for your red waistcoat. Could you explain why? Good question. That's the way you learn, son. Whenever we gauge an enemy, I always want to wear a red waistcoat so in case I should sustain a hit during the battle, no one will notice and it won't demoralize the crew. So they'll keep fighting. So, Oh, I see. That's great. A few days later, cowboy comes in and says, Lord Nelson, Lord Nelson, the whole Spanish Armada is on the horizon. He says, get me my brown britches and sound general quarters. <laughs> okay. Okay. Getting back to Belshazzar. <laughs> the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And the king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me its interpretation shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Third ruler is a clue, by the way. Because for centuries, people said Daniel was wrong, it was unreliable, because they thought they knew how Babylon fell. Because the king of Babylon wasn't really killed, he escaped, and they had all kinds of theories. Except that uh, Sir Henry Rawlinson found some evidences in relatively recent years that totally unravels how we really understand Babylon fell. And it turns out there was a joint rulership, and Abinadus was not present. His co-reigning son was the one that was killed that night. And it's interesting, see, that's why he announces the third ruler in the kingdom, because he was only the second himself, you follow me. And now it turns out from the current archaeological evidences and a detailed, careful reading of Daniel 5 demonstrates not only is it correct, it had to be written by an eyewitness. It's kind of interesting. Anyway, moving on. Then came in all the king's wise men, and they could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation of it. And I'll explain why in a minute. Then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were perplexed. And I might mention, by the way, they were never more sincere. That's okay as long as you're sincere. Gee, they're pretty sincere, and they're terrified. The people outside Noah's Ark, when the door was shut and the rain started, were very sincere. All the theological arguments about the ways to God ended at that single door. Interesting. Now, the wives and concubines were already there, but now we have in verse 10 introduced another person. Now, the queen, this is apparently the widowed wife of Nebuchadnezzar. The queen mother, if you will. Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet house, and the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Notice that's always the oriental greeting. O king, live forever. It's a protocol thing. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom, and whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him, in whom the king Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, thy father, the master of the magicians, and so forth. For as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding and interpreting of dreams and revealing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts or knots, if you will, were found in the same Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Don't confuse Daniel's Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, with Belshazzar the king. Don't confuse those two. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then was Daniel brought in before the king. He'd heard of his reputation. And uh, he points out that the wise men could answer any of this stuff. And he says, if you'll make known, you'll give me clothes in scarlet and have a chain of gold about thy neck and shalt be a third ruler in the kingdom. So he gives Daniel the big play here. I love 
in Daniel's response. You get great insight into Daniel. Then Daniel answered and said unto the king, Notice, first of all, there is no protocol. There is no, O king, live forever. You know, he just thumbs that one. Let thy gifts be to thyself. Give thy rewards to another, yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known unto him the interpretation. Now notice, not only does he thumb his nose at Belshazzar, he first delivers a eulogy on Nebuchadnezzar. He's saying in effect, now there was a king. Not you, punk, you know. Oh, without king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And lays it on. And for the majesty he gave him all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he slew, and whom he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he set up, and whom he would, he put down. That's your father. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild asses, and they fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and that he appointed over it whomsoever he will. But thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this. He's drawing a contrast. Even Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, fell through pride. He's talking about Daniel 4. Daniel 4 is written by Nebuchadnezzar. It's his testimony, published throughout the world. And he went through seven years of mental derangement, in which Daniel, according to the Talmud, personally took care of him, Nebuchadnezzar. And because of Daniel 4, I expect to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. I think he was saved, interestingly enough. But Daniel continues to nail this young guy. Thou hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought vessels of his house before thee, thou and thy lords and thy wives and thy concubines, and drunk wine from them. And thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is, and in whose are all thy ways, thou hast not glorified. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. And now Daniel interprets it. And what you have to visualize because we're Western readers, I'm going to reverse this. See, we're used to reading left to right. And so I'll speak in that idiom that you should know that Aramaic and Hebrew are backwards from our point of view. They read from right to left. But let me ignore that for the moment. According to the Talmud, what the letters were on the, on the wall were they were written vertically and backwards. So if you visualize in our vernacular, reading from the right to the left, M-N-M-N, T-K-L, and P-R-S. You see, in Hebrew and Aramaic, they have only consonants. The vowels are implied. Daniel recognized that it was vertical, not horizontal, and that it was backwards. And he says, here's what it says. Many, many, tekel, eupharsin. Now, the eupharsin will confuse you because when he then interprets it in detail, he says, perez. What you and I don't know, unless you've done some homework, is you is a connective like and. And Pharisin is the plural in Aramaic of peras. And just like in Hebrew, you got cherub and cherubim. Certain nouns have an I-M ending for plurals in the Hebrew. In the Aramaic, some of them end in I-N. So Eupharsin happens to be the plural of peras. But let's go on. That's just mechanics. This is the interpretation of it. Many, which means numbered. Daniel says, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Or in our vernacular, your number's up. Tekel, which means weighed. Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. 
Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Now, Perez is a pun because if you impute an E, the PRS was being a P-E-R-E-S, it means divided. If you put a P-A-R-A-S, it was the Aramaic word for the Persians, you see. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. But verse 30 is the important one. That night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain. Now, while this is all going on, Ugbaru, the shrewd general of Cyrus, did a very clever thing. He controlled the canal system because he conquered it two days earlier. And he laid out his strategy, which is very simple. He took one of his divisions, sent it upriver, and at a pre-appointed time, diverted the river Euphrates into the canal system, thus lowering the water level at the Euphrates that was entering Babylon, feeding both the moat and protecting the city. And at that pre-appointed time, the other divisions of Ugbaru went in under the gates and took over the city. The key point is, while, see, while all this partying is going on, the water level is lowering in the moat. And by reasons that the historians are not sure why, all the gates were left open that connected to the river. Because they not only got into the river, but they, the gates were left open. They either did it by subterfuge with spies or it was done through negligence. Who knows? The historians aren't sure. Herodotus is our primary authority on the details. But the important thing for you and I to be aware of is there was no battle. The residents for three days didn't even know they were taken over. The Persians just took over and made sure the temple services were not interrupted. Cyrus's attitude was to honor the gods of his conquered. He didn't, like some things, overturn it. He, rather, he honored them. So he made sure the temple services continued. But the point is that everything was normal. And for 200 years, Babylon was the secondary capital of the Persians. When Alexander the Great conquers it years later, he makes it his capital. Why am I emphasizing this? Because the Bible in Isaiah 13 and 14 and in Jeremiah 50 and 51 and Revelation 17 and 18 describe the specific destruction of the city of Babylon on the Euphrates as a Chaldean city. That is a major power in the world economically, politically, and religiously. That destruction that Isaiah talks about has never happened, despite what your commentaries may tell you. According to the Bible, when Babylon is destroyed, it will never be inhabited and the building materials will never be reused. It will be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah, that is, with hailstones of fire from the sky. Has that happened in the past? No, never. Babylon did atrophy over the centuries, but it was always occupied. Building materials were reused. I mean, you can find a dozen different discrepancies. Babylon did not get destroyed the way Isaiah and Jeremiah and Revelation predict. What does that mean? That means it's yet to rise to power to receive the judgment that God has predicted. God means what he says and says what he means. Why am I emphasizing this? Because for 20 years, Saddam Hussein has been rebuilding the city of Babylon. And to you and I who are biblically oriented, that is a dramatic milestone. More significant than Baghdad and what have you. CNN will never appreciate the significance of the city 62 miles south of Baghdad called Babylon. But if our biblical perception is correct, it's going to reemerge as a major world power. Religiously, politically, and economically. But back to this interesting guy by the name of Cyrus. Because Ugbaru on the 12th of October conquers Babylon as described in Daniel 5. Sixteen days later, Cyrus personally makes his grand entrance. He now is ruler of the world. He's conquered the major world empire, Babylon. And without a battle, pretty shrewd. That's been his style whenever he can. 
But something very interesting happens. He discovers that when he conquers Babylon, he's inherited a group of Hebrew slaves that were slaves of Babylon. And one of the prominent leaders of this group, a guy by the name of Daniel, approaches Cyrus, gets an audience, and shows him a dusty old scroll of the book of Isaiah that was written 150 years earlier, virtually a century, more than a century, before Cyrus was born. And Cyrus indulges this guy and reads, or hears read to him, the following passage, starting at Isaiah 44, verse 27. Speaking of the God of Israel, who saith to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. By now Cyrus saying, hey, that's kind of interesting, Mark. (laughs) Ugbrew did a pretty good job. What a coincidence. Verse 28. Who saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall perform all my pleasure. By now Cyrus is thinking, hey, that's what a coincidence. There's my name in this old ancient text. Isn't that interesting? What a coincidence. He is my shepherd. He shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built unto the temple. Thy foundation shall be laid. When Isaiah wrote this, it was bizarre because Jerusalem and the temple weren't destroyed yet. But when 150 years later, when Cyrus is reading this, it's intriguing him because here's these slaves who have been in exile for 70 years and their city, Jerusalem, is in rubble and their temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the predecessor of the people he conquered. And this guy Cyrus apparently is going to say, Thou shalt be built, and thy foundation shall be laid. Isn't that interesting? But the passage goes on. Remember the chapter divisions are man's insertions here. Let's just keep reading. Chapter 45, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Wait a minute now. If you're Jewish, if you're a Pharisee, you're a scribe. That's a bizarre phrase. The word anointed used of a Gentile king. Interesting. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him. Forty-six of them, by the way. And I will loose the loins of kings. (laughs) We just read about one. (laughs) Belshazzar says, get me my brown britches. To open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. That's interesting. It was Cyrus's subterfuge or whether it was accident, whatever. The gates not being shut is one of the things that contributed to their very quiet victory. God said, I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut in sunder the bars of iron. I will give thee the treasures of darkness, the hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, who call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Can you imagine yourself as Cyrus, world conqueror, obviously on an ego trip, and yet hearing this, a letter written to him by name over a century earlier, 150 years earlier, outlining his career, outlying the techniques that he used to subdue the world empire called Babylon, all written in black and white almost two centuries earlier? Would you be impressed? 
You betcha you would be, and history records Cyrus's response. He does some interesting things. First thing he did was he reversed the policies of the cruel Assyrians and Babylonians that he conquered, and he released the peoples that were subjugated to go to their own homelands. The style prior to him was one, if you subdued people, you moved them to cut them away from their roots. You transported them to your land because it was a way of subjugating them. Cyrus reversed that. Not only for the Jews, the others too. He not only gave them permission to go back and build the temple, he gave them the money to do it. Or at least a budget, he contributed to it. He gave them financial incentives to return. Only 50,000 went. 70 years have gone by. They're comfortable in Babylon. But the 50,000 that do go back do rebuild. Under the leadership of Zerubbabel, they rebuild the temple. And that's recorded in the Bible in Ezra and Nehemiah and all of that. It is some time later that Nehemiah, cupbearer the king, is disturbed because they're not making much progress because they're beset upon by their enemies. The temple progress is very slow because they don't have the authority to rebuild the, the wall of the city. So he gets permission from Artaxerxes Langemanus, the ruler at the time, to uh, actually implement the directions that Cyrus had left, gives the authority for the city of Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And from Daniel 9, you know that uh, Gabriel had told Daniel it's 173,880 days from that point until the Messiah would present himself as king. And Sir Robert Anderson is famous for having discovered the fact that from March 14, 445 B.C., when the decree of Artaxerxes to rebuild the city was given to Nehemiah, unto the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem on April 6th of 32 A.D. was 173,880 days to the very day. And Jesus himself wept over the city. And because you didn't recognize your day, he says in Luke chapter 19, it is now hidden from thine eyes. And Israel as a nation is blinded from that day until, Paul says in Romans 11.25, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. But then the game changes. And God will once again deal with the planet Earth through Israel. And they're setting aside as our opportunity as the church. 70th week of Daniel and the church are mutually exclusive. That's a whole other issue. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.